find something that wouldn't drive me crazy, that'd be pretty impressive to start with. So, First Corinthians chapter 3 is where we've been studying. I'm going to read to you now out of First Corinthians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 18. He says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, He taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. Therefore, let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours, and ye are Christ's and Christ's is God's. Let a man so account of us as of ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful." But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment, yea, I judge not mine own self. For I know nothing by myself, yet I am not hereby justified, but he that judgeth me is the Lord. Therefore, judge nothing before the time, until the Lord come, who both will bring to light the hidden things of darkness, and will make manifest the counsels of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. And these things, brethren, I in a figure transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. For who maketh thee to differ from another? And what hast thou that thou didst not receive? Now if thou didst receive it, why dost thou glory as if thou hadst not received it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day, Lord. We thank you for the blessings that you give us. We thank you for the privilege that we have of knowing you and serving you. We ask, Father, that you'd help us to see our proper role in your world, your, our proper role in your plan, our, our proper place, Father, that as we study your word today, that we would recognize ourselves as stewards and we'd know that the most important thing for a steward is to be found faithful. So I just ask, Father, that you'd open your word into our hearts today, that you'd, with your spirit, reveal wonderful things to us, that we would come to know you better and be more like your son, Jesus, in whose name I pray. Amen. So a little bit of background. Of course, the chapter divisions were not added to the Bible until the 1200s. They were added to make it easier to find things, very much like page numbers. And the chapter divisions are sometimes in very, very bad places. Uh, the only place that the chapter divisions are inspired is in the book of Psalms, because they were separate individual psalms already. But the chapter divisions and the epistles in different places were added by a group of people in the 1200s, and the verse divisions were added in the 1400s. And so sometimes, if you say, I'm going to read two chapters, and then you stop when you get to the end of the chapter, you miss the whole point. Can you imagine if you turned on a TV show 10 minutes in, and uh, then turned it off 10 minutes early, and then kind of tried to figure out what was going on. I don't know about you, I have from time to time been late to a movie. And you miss the first 20 minutes of the movie or something, and you have no idea the whole time. <laughs> a lot of people read the Bible like that. They take a little snippet of the Bible and then think that they're going to figure out what's happening. So we have to always look at the Bible in its context. You know, you've got to pick up the flow of what's being said, and you've got to ignore those chapter and verse divisions, actually, most of the time. The chapter and verse divisions are not usually very helpful for serious study of the Bible. Now, in this case, I think that chapter 4 is put 
in a very strange place. It happens right in the middle of a thought. And so we're going to have a little bit from the end of chapter 3 and a little bit from the beginning of chapter 4. But let's, let's pick up our thought once again. Okay, Corinth. Corinth was the New York City of the ancient world. It was a bustling port town. It was powerful. It was maybe more like Las Vegas than New York City. It was, uh, there was, uh, the temple was there where they had the temple prostitutes. They were wealthy. They were decadent. They had everything they wanted. That's why the, um, more than one preacher has made the joke of uh, retitling it the first letter to the Californians. But really, it's, it's America. Okay? This, these people were also deeply divided. Okay? They were they had uh, traveling teachers come into town, and people would actually pay the traveling teachers for the privilege of being their disciple. So they'd pay them as patrons to be called a disciple of so-and-so. And so instead of being about what was true, instead of being about what was right, it's about whose team am I on? You know, the, uh, the Corinthians would say, well, I follow the philosopher, you know, Epicurus. Another one would say, well, you know, I follow Socrates. And say, well, you know, Socrates was all right, but Plato was really the one you need to listen to. And instead of looking at what was right and looking at what was true, they were caught up in the arguments. They were caught up in the arguments about who was the most impressive <laughs> rather than who was telling the truth. And really, it all came down to what brand label you could wear. You wanted to say, well, I'm on this team, and I'm on this team. And anybody that's on a different team is no friend of mine. And if you have not already picked up on it, that is, of course, something that happens today, too. <laughs> you know, I, I uh, often say that I think for most people in our country, the uh, leader of the opposite party, uh, if you're a Republican, then uh, Nancy Pelosi could cure cancer. You'd say, well, she's sure up to something, isn't she? You know, <laughs> and the same thing with Donald Trump. If you're a Democrat, you say, well, he, you know, or and people in your own party, of course, can do no wrong. It's about what team you're on. What's one of the first things we want to find out with somebody? It's about what team they're on. <laughs> and it becomes less about what's true and more about people. Now, in Corinth, this had bled into the church. And so you remember some of them were saying, well, I follow Paul. Some of the other ones said, well, I follow Apollo. Some of them said, I follow Peter. Some of them said, well, I just follow Jesus. You can forget about the rest of it. I just read the red letters. <laughs> And so they were deeply divided into different factions, into different teams. And, of course, that bleeds through today, too. You'll say, well, I really like an orator. You know, I like somebody whose words can scrape the heavens, can use, use $10 words and really, really be impressive. Somebody says, well, I like somebody who's, uh, and that's, that's what Apollos was like. Somebody said, well, I don't care so much about speaking skill. I want somebody who's really intelligent, somebody who can really break it apart. Well, that's what Paul was like. Somebody else says, well, you know, I want somebody who's got a lot of firsthand experience. I want somebody who's been there. And that's, of course, what Peter was like. And so we've got these same kind of divisions that run as fault lines through the history of Christianity up to today. And Paul comes into this situation, and you'd think that Paul would be flattered. You'd think he'd say, yes, you know, some of you are following me, and the rest of you need to get with the program. But Paul says, you're acting like a bunch of infants, <laughs> He says, you're all caught up in the world so much that spiritually you're little babies that don't know you're left from your right. He says, you should be eating solid food. Instead, you're stuck on milk. And he, he's really pretty, pretty strongly speaking against them. He says, you're so concerned with being in the wise group, you're so concerned with being associated with the right people that you've forgotten the wisdom of God and you've become fools. You care more about what it looks like than about what it is. And again, 
If you think that that is not a contemporary problem, people more concerned about what things look like than about what they are, then I encourage you to get out more. All these different things come up here. Now, last week we looked at it, and Paul had explained to them that really the problem with their whole way of thinking is that they were caught up in people, and people are nothing. He says, you are a field. You're a garden. You are a garden that God has planted. You're God's garden. God owns the garden. God buys the supplies, and God sends the workers in. He said, he sent me in as a planter. He sent Apollos in as a waterer. He said, but God's the one who made it grow. You are God's garden. You are God's husbandry. He said, you're God's building. You're God's temple. God has put me in to lay the foundation that everything would be built on Jesus. He sent other people in to build on top of that foundation, but you're God's temple. You're the place where he lives and you belong to him. He said, so why are you caught up in the worker instead of the one that owns the house? And so a church here, a group of people, can so often get caught up in individuals that they lose the sight of the master who owns it. I know, and I, you know, I hate to get into the too many specifics, but you know, I well, I can think of the church in Baytown. You're all familiar with that situation, most of you. So I'll give you a little bit of detail. Um, for the Cleveland pastor there for 25 years or something, he's come preached for us a number of times. Everybody likes him. He's very successful, and he left to retire. When he retired, a new pastor came. And the new pastor was there for about four years, I guess, before the church closed down because they were out of money and out of people. It was bad. <laughs> uh, it, was, it was devastating. I spent a lot of time with them. They, uh, when Brother Cleveland left, they were giving $50,000 a year to missions, and you know, they're really, really successful in a lot of ways. And then uh, less than five years later, they had $0 to pay a salary for anybody who was there. It's gone. Now, how did that happen? A couple different things, but... One thing that happened is that some of the people there would never respect the new pastor. He said, you know, well, you're not what we've had. You're not what we're used to. And we want somebody who's going to preach like this and somebody who's going to do like this and somebody's going to do like this. And so they caused some problems for him. Now, then the way he responded to that was not good either. The way he responded to that made it worse and amplified it, and he started running people off and causing fights and saying, what's going to be my way or the highway and things like that. And what was the mentality problem in both of those instances? They made it about the man instead of about the God. They made it about the manager on shift instead of the owner of the whole chain. Okay, They made it about people instead of about the God of the universe. Now, how often does that happen in churches? (laughs) <laughs> we, just, we as human beings are so short-sighted. I think about when Moses uh, went up on Mount Sinai. And, you know, he went up on Mount Sinai and he was up there for 40 days receiving the law. And during the time that he was receiving the law, the Israelites said, well, they came to Aaron and said, we don't know what happened to Moses. We need somebody to lead us. Aaron, you make us a golden calf and that golden calf will lead us into the promised land. And Aaron does. He takes their gold and melts it, and he holds it out and says, look, here is Yahweh. Here's Jehovah. Here's the God that led you out of Egypt and points at this golden calf. Because they wanted something physical they could look at. He said, Moses isn't here. We don't have a man to look at. We need something to go forward for us. Now, what's the really strange thing about that, if you're familiar with your Bible? 
Do you remember when the Israelites left Egypt, God said, I'm going to give you a fiery pillar by night and a cloudy pillar by day. And the Bible says in the book of Joshua that that cloud didn't depart until they came into the promised land. And so while the Israelites are sitting at the foot of Mount Sinai and Moses is up on the mountain receiving the law, there is a pillar of fire there burning. (laughs) And then, you know, so the people come to Aaron and say, Aaron, uh, don't you think we need some kind of a visible sign so we know God's still for us? And Aaron said, I'm sorry, I can't hear you over the pillar of fire. (laughs) That's not what he said, is it? He went and made the golden calf because human beings have got very short memories. You say, well, I'm sure glad we're not dumb like that. Here's my question. How quickly does God do something for you and then you forget about it the next time you have a problem? (laughs) How quickly, you know, your attitude with God is, Lord, maker of heaven and earth, save my soul, gives me everything I have. What have you done for me lately? (laughs) We don't know what's happened to God. I haven't seen anything in man. Oh, weak. And we lose the whole mentality of, you know, I can't even walk without you holding my hand. We lose the whole sense of dependence on God. And so it's easy for workers, it's easy for the the farmer and the the planter and the waterer to, to lose sight of the fact that they don't make it grow. It's easy for the plants, for us as a part of a church, to lose sight of the fact that God's the one who gives the increase. And when that happens, you've got division. And that division doesn't just undermine the growth of a church or the success of a church, although it does both those things. Division undermines the message of the gospel itself. Division says Christianity is not true. So what do you mean? How does division say that Christianity is not true? Well, the message of the Bible from beginning to end is that people are alienated from God, that we are enemies of God because of our sin, but that God sent his son to reconcile us, to bring us to peace with himself. Now, if in the church I can't be at peace with you and you can't be at peace with me, then why would anybody believe that we're at peace with God? If the death of Jesus is not powerful enough to put peace in churches and in families and in lives... Why would anybody believe it when we say that the, the death of Christ and the resurrection of Christ is good enough to put us at peace with the Holy God? It doesn't make any sense. In fact, that's the one thing Jesus says you can do to make people believe. He said, he prayed in John 18, let them be one as we are one, that the world may know that you have sent me. He said, the way that people will know that God sent Jesus, the way people will know that Jesus is the Christ, is that... He has people who are united with each other. So, so easily, though, we get caught up in the alternative. Now, Paul then, in this section that we're looking at this morning, really gets into the the underlying problem in people's thinking that makes them get confused. The problem is that you and I have got an ownership mentality. You look at your stuff and you say, that's my stuff. You look at your life and you say, this is my life. Who has any right to take this away from me? This belongs to me. Nobody's going to tell me what to do with my life. Paul says the mentality you need to have is that you're not an owner, you're a steward. God has given you some of his stuff and said, take care of this for me for a very little while. 
And we're going to see that here. So look with me again. He says in verse 18, let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. I really like the way that first starts out. It says, if you think that you're wise, don't deceive yourself. So you're not deceiving anybody else. Nobody else thinks that you're wise. You're not fooling anybody. <laughs> he says, if you think that you're wise, stop lying to yourself and admit that you're a fool so you can have full wisdom. There's nobody who is as hard to teach as somebody who thinks they already know it. Okay? Have you ever tried to explain something complicated to a 13-year-old? <laughs> They're not listening. Okay? They think, I already know what you're talking about. Why, why would I listen to you? Um, in fact, uh, my brother Travis came down last week for some help on some math. He got in a class, and I don't know how he got in this class. Um, he's taking, this is just the nicest way I know how to say it. He's in, you know, economics 432 or something. And uh, he's almost, you know, he's at A&M, and he comes, and he says, yeah, my teacher said we, um, I, when I signed up for this class, it didn't flag me on any prerequisites or anything, so I figured it was okay. And then uh, my teacher said that when the, the first day we, needed, we weren't in the right class if we didn't know how to do something called derivatives. He said, but I figured you could teach me that. I said, well, I can teach you that. When was the last math class you had? He said, well, when I was a junior in high school, I took pre-cal. Travis, you were a junior in high school in 2013. said, you haven't had any math in the last four years? I said, well, no. I said, and I didn't say this, but I thought, and you weren't that good at math at the time? <laughs> and so he comes in, and I said, okay, let me see how much you need to know, and I will spot teach you calculus so that you know enough to do this work. So he brings it to me and lays it out. And I look at it, and I, I say, par partial derivatives. This doesn't mean anything to anybody except me. What partial derivative flags for me is calculus 3. And so the prerequisites for this class are calculus 1, calculus 2, and calculus 3. And the last math class that he had was uh, pre-cal in a junior in high school. <laughs> Not good. And uh, he comes in, and he says, okay, can you explain this to me? And so we start working on some of it. And it became obvious to me he didn't remember a whole lot of pre-cal either. <laughs> so we're going to do five years of math, basically, in an afternoon so that he can pass his economics class. Now, I want you to imagine that. I want you to imagine trying to teach algebra to a second grader who can barely add. That's the way that I'm going to make this comparison. You cannot explain something to somebody who does not have a knowledge of what they know and what they don't know. Paul says, spiritually, said the Corinthians think they're so smart, they've signed up for the advanced class. <laughs> he says, but if any of you is fooling himself into thinking he's wise, he needs to admit he's a fool before he's ever going to be able to learn anything. <laughs> spiritually, when we think that we understand, when we think, oh, look at me, I, you know, I've got this under control. This is, I, I know how things ought to be done. I know how things ought to be. Spiritually, when we get to that point, we're not teachable anymore. Ever worked with somebody who wasn't teachable? Ever had a job where there was somebody who could not be taught because they thought they already knew how to do it? The worst people in the entire world. I'd rather have somebody that doesn't know how to do anything that's teachable than somebody that's not teachable, you know, who's almost there. Because somebody who can't be taught is just, they can't be taught, right? 
spiritually, how many Christians and how many churches all over the world are like that? I don't need to mess it up. 99%, you may be right. <laughs> he says, if you think you're wise, you need to become a fool because that's the only way you're ever going to become wise. This mentality of thinking you already know it is what's keeping you in your divisions. It's what's keeping you from a real relationship with God. So he says in verse 19, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own craftiness. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are vain. It says the things that seem so smart to you in comparison to God, it's nothing. You imagine the, the smartest kid in the kindergarten class going to take high school math and just doesn't, it's, there's no comparison. The, the things that you think you've attained, there's no, no helping you here. So spiritually, it says you missed the whole thing. Verse 21 is really the the central part I want to look at here. Therefore, let no man glory in men. It says, don't brag about yourself. Don't brag about other people. Don't glory in humanity. He says, for all things are yours. He says, you have everything. If you could just see it. You say, well, how do I have everything? You know, I don't feel like I have everything. So I don't feel like I have very much at all. (laughs) What does he really mean by everything? He says in verse 22, well, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, said so any of the apostles you want or or Apollos too, said you you want one of these leaders? These leaders belong to you or the world. What? That escalated quickly. The world. The world belongs to you or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. He says, why do you worry about the petty divisions of people? Why do you get caught up in pretending you know things you don't know? Why do you act like you're wise when really you're fools? If you would just, when if you would just change your perspective, you'd realize that everything belongs to you. You say, well, this, you know, are you about to tell me that I can, you know, that being a Christian guarantees I'm going to be wealthy and healthy and successful and prosperous. That's not what he's saying at all. Let's see what he says. Look here in the next verse. And you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. It says, why does everything belong to you? Everything belongs to you because you are a child of the king. Because through Jesus, you are a child of God. And as a child of God, you have access to everything that God has access to. But how do you get access to it? How do you do that? How do you take advantage of this? Well, you don't do it by throwing your weight around and saying, I own this, this is mine. You don't do it by being crafty or smart or wise because all that ends up being foolishness. Do you know if I wanted something from my parents, okay, and I went in, and I decided, well, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sneak into their house in the middle of the night. And I'm going to go in. I'm going to unlock their safe, and I'm going to take out what I want. You'd be looking for a new pastor because I'd be laying right here. You come by, say, oh, doesn't he look natural? You know, looks, looks just like himself there except for the holes, right? <laughs> My dad wouldn't mean to shoot me, but he wouldn't know who I was until it was all over. If I tried to take it, right, that would be bad. But if I wanted something and I went and I asked for it, 
and it was in their power to give it to me, what would happen? They'd give it to me. You go to God and you say, God, you step out of the way. I've got a plan for how I'm going to get this thing that I need. <laughs> I'm going to do things my way. How's that going to turn out for you? <laughs> but if you go and you say, Father, I know that everything is yours. <laughs> then suddenly that's a totally different paradigm, isn't it? That if you think that you're wise, you're trying to outsmart God, you're trying to outsmart the world, you're trying to get things your own way, you have nothing. But if you say, God, I don't have anything, but I have you, then you have everything. It's one of the great kind of paradoxes of the Christian life. Whoever loses his life will find it. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it. The harder and the tighter you hold on to what you want, the less that you will have. And the bigger fool you are. <laughs> Standing, holding tight to a handful of nothing. So then in chapter 4, verse 1, he explained it some more. He says, let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He says, do you want to know how to think about us? He says, don't think about us as owners. Don't think about us as people who've gotten something. Think of us as ministers. What's minister mean? The word minister here is actually the word deacon, diakonos. And originally a deacon was a waiter, a table waiter. The job of the deacons in uh, Acts 7 was to take the food and give it to the people. Now, did that food belong to them? No. They just passed it along. If I go to a restaurant and uh, I order something, okay, let's, say, let's say I go down and I order a hamburger and french fries, and I see the waiter coming around the corner and he's eating some of the french fries. Well, wait a minute. And he comes, and I said, what, what are you doing? You're eating my French fries. He said, well, they were my French fries, and now I'm giving them to you, but I could do you know, they're mine. See, so somebody here is confused about their role in this transaction. The waiter's job is to bring me what is being given to me. If you go on an airplane, steward, that's the place we still use the word steward, stewardess, right? It's on an airplane. You go, you, you're sitting on an airplane... You say, I'd like some peanuts, or I'd like some Coke, or I'd like some coffee, or whatever. And uh, if you're flying Southwest, the steward brings it to you, right? <laughs> flying another airline, they said, that'll be $15. So, <laughs> say, I'd like a blanket. We don't have blankets. <laughs> Try this. Try rubbing your hands together. Um, <laughs> 10 bucks. yeah, thank you for the, the air you're using up right now. A steward's job on an airplane is to take what's yours and bring it to you. And that's all. <laughs> you know, and if, I don't, if the stewardess doesn't like me, they don't get to not bring me peanuts because it's not their peanuts. <laughs> if you understand your role properly, you are a servant of Jesus. You are a steward of the mysteries of God. All you do is hold what is God's and pass it on. Now, on one hand, that means that you've got more than you would ever have. So this week, uh, I told you already we were doing flood relief. And I went door-to-door, -door and I gave out over $1,000 worth of Home Depot gift cards, $30 gift cards. Now, if I had to give out the gift cards that I could afford to give out, then we would run out pretty quick. I'd go to you know, two houses. And that was good. Good luck. <laughs> but what did we do? Well, the, the church had the money that was donated to help with flood relief. And all I did was take that and pass it on. All I took was God's money and gave it to the people God wanted to have it. But if I had a little bit better perspective, 
if we all had a little bit better perspective, do you know when you pull it out of your wallet what you're doing? You're taking God's money and you're giving it where God wants it to be. <laughs> when you use your time, you know who your time belongs to? Who owns your life? The one who bought you. <laughs> Jesus. So we as human beings, the reason that you're not generous, the reason that you're a people pleaser, the reason that you are self-centered, the reason you always want to do your own thing first, the reason you watch 17 hours of TV a day, I don't know. Average American watches six and a half hours of TV a day. It's pretty impressive. The reason you do that is that you think that your life belongs to you. But it doesn't. You are a steward of the mysteries of God. And if you're not passing along, <laughs> you know, the, the thing about a steward and a servant is that they're always a pipe. You know, they're never a bucket. They're, they're you, your job is never to accrue things. Your job is to pass them on over and over and over again. So he says, moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Do you know what you need to be a good steward? So I need to be fast. I need to be strong. I need to be friendly. You want consistency. That's it. Faithful. A, you know, and I, sometimes it feels like this on an airplane. I use that example again. It seems like, you know, they do a couple, they get tired, they go sit down, relax a little bit, come back later if they feel like it. That's not a very good steward, is it? There's some restaurants in the area that I could name where I think the waiters, you know, sometimes act like that. They just sort of, you know, they, they work when they feel like it and they go off and text or whatever it is. A lot of Christians are like that. How many Christians do you know? Don't raise your hands. Don't point at yourself. Oh, me. How many Christians do you know that run hot and cold? You know, January 1st, you're like, I'm going to read through the Bible this year. Genesis 1, 2, 3, and 4. Boy, there were some begats there, but don't worry, I got this. This is the Word of God. This January 2nd, you say, well, I'm going to read three chapters today. You know, I don't want to overdo it. I've got to pace myself. I don't want to, you know, strain an eye muscle or something. Relax a little bit. You know, don't push me. Don't pressure me. Always push this Bible down my throat. A January 15th, you're reading one verse at the top of a devotional and hoping you kind of understand what it was about. By March, most of you have forgotten you have a Bible, and you're like, well, you know, it's too late to start now, so January, next year, boy, I'm going to read through the Bible. <laughs> How many Christians do you know that are hot and cold like that? You know, something happens in your life, and you pray, you say, oh, Lord, I need your help. Lord, if you do this, I'll serve you for the rest of my life. And God takes care of that situation. And two weeks later, you say, well, Lord, what have you done for me lately? You know. Surely you know that when I said for the rest of my life, I meant for the rest of this problem. <laughs> and then you so some Christians are so, I, I, don't, I don't know a, a nice word for it. <laughs> I, just, I just say hot and cold. But we, we are all over the place, inconsistent, unreliable. I mentioned this on Wednesday night, but I'm going to mention it again. One of my friends, uh, Jonathan Smith, is a pastor or youth pastor in Dallas. He's been a youth pastor for 35 years or something up there. And uh, he, is, um, a, he runs a group called City Reach. Uh, it's an evangelistic thing. And they, uh, what they do is three different times in the summer, they've got three different um, cities they go to. And they bring in two or 300 teenagers in 
to the city and they wash people's cars and pass out tracks and do soccer camps for kids and they just it's just a for a week they pick a new church plant and for a week they give that church plant 300 full-time volunteers you know and reach a huge number of people uh, so he's one of the most evangelistic people you ever meet in your entire life and he said he said something strange happened to him last week he said something that had never happened to him before he said somebody came up to him and shared the gospel with him. <laughs> he, said, you know, he said outside of a church event or something like that. He said it was the first time in his life growing up in Texas. He was from Canada, but he's lived in Texas a long time. First time in his life that anybody had come up to him and talked to him outside of a church event and actually shared how to be saved with him. <laughs> it's awesome that somebody did it. It's not awesome that it took, uh, you know, 50 or 45 years for him to have it. And so I asked on Wednesday night, and we don't really have time to kind of engage in this the way that we did then now, but I'm going to ask you, do you, can you remember the last time that somebody came and shared the gospel with you? Say, well, there's some, some people, you know, there's some cults and stuff that should have false gospels that come and share that, but that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about when was the last time somebody came to you and told you that by grace alone, through faith alone, you could be saved if you would turn from your sin and trust in Jesus? Now, do I need to remind you that you live in Brazoria County, Texas, <laughs> that nominally 95% Christian or something like that, and if nobody has ever told you the gospel, how do you think it is in some of these other places? <laughs> Now, and so another pastor kind of replied to him and said that the one thing he would least like to be in the world would be a lost person waiting on somebody to come tell him about Jesus because they're never going to (laughs) come. Now, if you're a steward of the mysteries of God and God has said, oh, here you go. Here is the mystery of eternal life. Here's the mystery of how I gave my son in your place. Here's the mystery of how by faith I make you my child. Here's this mystery and you hold on to it, you're a bad steward. So we, and you know, you get excited, you say, I'm going to go share my faith, and you, but then you're hot and cold. It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. What's that thing that we all want to hear Jesus say at the end of our life? Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now forget about good for a second. Forget about well done for a second. How many of you really feel honestly like you will stand before God at the end of your life and he could look at you and say, faithful, you are one that I could count on? That's spooky. (laughs) But that's your one job. You know, God didn't call you to be a chef. God didn't call you to prepare the wonderful blessings he was making. God didn't call you to pay for it. He didn't call you to be the cashier that figured out who was worth, who deserved what, who could afford what, you know. Oh, this person sure doesn't deserve the gospel. God didn't call you to do that. He said, you are a table waiter. You are a minister. All you do is you take it and you pass it on. Here's my question. If that's your job, should you be fired? (laughs) If you worked at a restaurant and you were as faithful at a restaurant as you are in the Christian life, would you be able to keep your job? 
It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. When we get caught up and say, this is mine, these are my rights, I deserve it, we lose the whole point. You belong to God, and God says, I want you to be a pipe that takes my message out to people. And when you do that, there's no room for divisions. There's no room for, well, I really like this person's style, or I really don't like this person, or whatever. There's no room for any of that kind of stupidity, right? None. <laughs> people, um, you know, I've I told you before that there was a, a Sunday school teacher at Alvin, the church I grew up at, that Colleen didn't like and wouldn't, you know, <laughs> not Colleen, uh, his, well, she didn't like him either, but it was somebody else who didn't like him. And uh, they wouldn't go to Sunday school if he was teaching. They took turns. said, it's not the person, it's the message of God. Grow up! Right? That's what Jesus would say. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. It's time to be mature as a Christian. It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. Say, well, what does that mean? It means it changes the whole way we think about success. It changes the whole way we think about judgment. It changes the whole way we think about everything. He says in verse 3, but with me, it's a very small thing that I should be judged of you or of man's judgment. Yeah, judge not my own self. He says, I don't care what you think of me. He says, I don't think about me either. I don't care what I think about me. Your evaluation is very small because I'm not overweight. I'm not a chef. I'm a waiter. You ever listen to people, I don't know, sometimes you hear people at other tables yelling at the waitress about their food being, you know, something. You think, well, she didn't cook it. You know, what you, why are you mad at this person? I don't take it personally if I bring you a cake that somebody else sent me with and you don't like the cake. I just passed along what I was supposed to pass along. If, as a Christian, you pass along the message that God has given and the person doesn't like it, well, it's not your fault. They're rejecting the author of it. They're rejecting God. They're not rejecting you. He said, I don't care what you think of me. If you care what people think of you, you're confused about who you are and what you are and what your purpose is. So he said, I don't care what you judge me. He says, for I know nothing by myself, yet I'm not hereby justified, but he that judges me is the Lord. He says, as far as I know, I don't know anything I'm doing wrong that I need to be condemned for. He said, but that's not good enough said, the one that judges me is God. He's the one that I work for. He's the boss. doesn't matter what you think or anybody else thinks. It says, it's about what God says. He says, verse 5, Therefore judge nothing before the time until the Lord come, who both will bring forth to light the hidden things of darkness and will make manifest the counsel of the hearts, and then shall every man have praise of God. He says, don't start evaluating people now and say, oh, this person's good, this person's bad, this person's faithful, this person's not faithful, because you don't know. When will you know? When the Lord comes and reveals it all. Now, that ought to be a little scary for you, because you can put on a pretty good show and people can think that you're pretty faithful. But when the Lord comes and the light of day shines, there are going to be some embarrassing moments that are brought to light. You imagine right now, if I had wired it up and said, we've had hidden cameras following all of you around this week, and I've made a little video montage of everything you've done since last Sunday, you know, play. How many of you would find a little back door out through there? <laughs> say, well, you know, you're just showing some of those couple bad moments. I was good most of the time, but it's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. <laughs> Consistency is what counts. Can you imagine um, somebody driving a truck, you know, a big 18-wheeler, and they look at the road most of the time. Makes you a little nervous. 90% of the time, I'm paying attention. Then I just took a little nap, and then boom, I don't know what happened. 
It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. The secret to following Jesus is to put one foot in front of the other and then the other foot back in front of that over and over and over and over again. It says, so don't judge other people. Don't judge anything. Wait and understand that God is the one that matters. And these things, brethren, I've transferred to myself and to Apollos for your sakes, that you might learn in us not to think of men above that which is written, that no one of you be puffed up for one against another. He says, you need to understand who you are. You need to understand who other people are. And then you won't judge other people. You won't be condemning of other people. You won't be comparing people because you'll understand that each one is just carrying out the role of passing along what God has given to them. Who maketh thee to differ from another? Who made you smarter or uh, better looking or stronger or harder work? Who made you different? And what do you have that you did not receive? Is there anything in your life that you have that wasn't given to you by God? No. Why dost thou glory as if thou hast not received it? Why do you boast about something that was a present? You don't have any room to boast about something that was a present. It was something that was given to you. And everything you have was given to you. There are no self-made men and women. There's nobody who earns anything, really, because all that you deserve is death. And if God wasn't gracious enough to give you life, you wouldn't have anything. And now, before we close, I'm going to read a couple verses further than I went before because I want to get this sense to you here. He says, For I think that God hath set forth us the apostles last, as it were appointed to death. For we are made a spectacle unto the world and to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are honorable, but we are despised. Even unto this present hour, we both hunger and thirst and are naked and are buffeted and have no certain dwelling place. And labor, being working with our own hands, being reviled, we bless. Being persecuted, we suffer it. Being defamed, we entreat. We are made as the filth of the world and are the offscouring of all things unto this day. I write not these things to shame you, but as my beloved sons, I warn you. He says, Corinthians, you're acting like kings. He says, and you are kings. Everything you have, is everything is yours. But you're acting like you reign already. And maybe you can notice that while you're reigning, while you're full, while you feel like you have everything, that the people who are really serving God don't. The people who are really serving God are in a point of desperation. The people who are really serving God are made a spectacle. The off-scouring of all things scrubbed off. When we think about that, we let our minds be taken in with that. You realize it doesn't make any sense. <laughs> that all things are yours already, but not yet. It's required of stewards that a man be found faithful. So my question today is, do you have a steward's mentality or do you have an owner's mentality? Do you have the sense that everything you have belongs to God and that God just lets you pass